this time. I'm going to ask you, if you're here, to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be spending our time there this morning as we study God's Word. My name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time, really glad that you're with us. Um, We're in the middle of a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn to Ecclesiastes 7. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14 in a moment while you're turning there. I just want to say how thankful I was that we had the opportunity to focus on adoption and foster care last week. Uh, What a powerful time we had together. Uh, Two ways you can still respond to that, um, even today at the the table. Next week, we're going to be collecting freezer meals for... um, uh, adoptive and foster care families. Uh, so if you were hearing about that and you, you can bring freezer meals next week and drop them off here on Sunday, they'll be collecting them, make sure they get in the right place. And then you can be a part of our upcoming Parents Night Out, uh, which is uh, taking place here uh, in several weeks. And we want, to, want you to be a part of helping us serve foster care families uh, during that time. Hopefully you got your Bibles open. Ecclesiastes 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God, we thank you for your word. We, uh, we just ask as we enter into thinking about it and studying it, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and you would cause us to be able to receive them with joy and hope and wisdom so that we could have our vision trained by you as we seek you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I saw a video this week, uh, maybe you saw it, uh, it was a video of a deer that, whose antlers was caught in a rope that was hanging from a tree, and somehow, have no idea how, but this large eight-point buck had gotten the rope hanging from the tree, wrapped around its antlers, and now it was caught, and it was running around trying to get these, uh, this rope out of its antlers, and I mean, it was like swinging through the air. It was running away and pulling its head. It was obvious that it was in distress, and there was no way that this deer was getting these antlers off of its head. Except for there were three guys there who are watching this large, kind of massive, energetic deer and wanting to help it. And so they began to try to figure out a way to sort of capture this deer and cut the rope in time that it could be able to sort of be be set free. But as you might imagine, the deer didn't know that they were trying to help. In fact, the deer in many ways was, was kicking and swinging its head at them as they're trying to, to, to help out. And, and so there's all this resistance from this deer that has only one chance of getting free. All this resistance against the people that were helping. 
And, and so we, you watch them, and they get kicked and hit and slammed, and they're trying to get And Finally, they manage to get this deer kind of wrapped around the tree at peril of their own life and their own sense of pain and injury. And they cut this rope, and the deer just runs off. Well, in some way, that is a, a bit of how the writer of Ecclesiastes is describing how we might be responding to the wisdom that he is showing us about God. You see, in this story, in this book that we've been studying, we've been learning that God has done some things in the world to bring us to a place where we would realize that all the things we go searching for pleasure in, joy in, satisfaction in, are empty, and many of the most difficult moments of, of life are part of God's rescue mission in our life to convince us more deeply that He is our true, enduring, and genuine hope. But our response may not be to welcome that news, especially in moments of adversity. Moments where the pain and loss of living in a broken world come to bear on our lives. We may not be able to see that God is using those moments to rescue us. The most surprising phrase in the passage that we just read, and maybe the entire book of Ecclesiastes is found here in verse 13. Look at what it says. Consider the work of God. Think about what we've been learning about God's work. What does it look like? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Solomon, the teacher, has been pointing out how crooked the world is. And reinforcing that in life under the sun, in our human experience, we should not e expect to find much gain in the long run. Everywhere that we think we've grasped it will fade like a mist and be shown to be temporary. In Hebrew, the word is hevel. It's like smoke that you think it's there and it fades away. And the good things in life, just when we have them, they vanish in the face of time. But what's surprising here is that here in this passage, we have the clearest moment when our teacher says, that hevel is God's work. It's not just the corruption of sin or the brokenness of the world, but in some way, for, for the mo in the most clear way, he says, all that crookedness and that emptiness that you've been finding, the inability to get it, God has purposed it. God has designed it. He says, consider the work of God. God made it crooked and you're busy trying to unwind it instead of learn the lesson that he wants to teach us. In a sense, he's contrasted all throughout the book our work and God's work. Our work has been to try and beat the vanity in life, to get, come out ahead, to, to try to undo this sense of uh, that, that we, can, we can't really grasp onto anything and keep it permanently. God's work has been to frustrate the pursuit of pleasure that way. To frustrate that sense that we have that we can really find what satisfies apart from Him. Here's what we can now see as God's work from the book. I kind of went through this week and thought, what has what is, what is the writer said about God's work? There's kind of three things that he's already said really clearly. God's work is, is a beautiful redemption that will be unveiled over time. It is maturing in history. So he says that in, in chapter 3, verse 11, we saw that God's work is this beautiful, beautiful story that he is working out in time that will mature in history. We also see here, though, that God's work is the vanity and hevel that is in the world exposing the emptiness of life without him. He's, he's doing both of those things simultaneously. And we see here that also that God's work, in verse 14, endures and is present through all the seasons of our life. So despite the fact that we experience loss and adversity, he says even there he's still doing the good thing that he intended from the beginning. He's still bringing redemption. You see verse 14, how he ends, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Like, receive it as a gift from God. And in the day of adversity, stop and consider what it means. And then do you see what he says? For both are from God. 
both of those kind of moments from God? That's difficult to receive, isn't it? That's difficult to hear. Which brings us to the main point of this passage. And perhaps the main point of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, as we're right here in the middle of it. The key idea in this passage is a call for us to embrace God's plan for life's emptiness as we look to his finished work as our hope. You see, what he's doing is he's saying, would you embrace what, what the writer of Ecclesiastes has been showing us about the emptiness of all of our pursuits so that you can embrace God as our genuine hope and, and look to his finished work in time as where you will really find your security? So we're called through this book and through this passage in particular to embrace God's plan for life's emptiness as we look to his finished work as our hope. The passage really, then if you, if you look at it, it really breaks down into two main parts if you, if you look at it closely. First, you might have noticed we read a bunch of Proverbs. They're like these pithy sayings that we're, we would commonly expect to find in the book of Proverbs. Verses 1 through 12 are all of these small, short, poetic ideas that we've got to wrestle with. Like, is there any theme through them? Because they just seem like kind of quips and wisdom, the kind of thing that you might put on a coffee mug. Twelve verses of that. Then verses 13 and 14, which I've already referenced, reinforce the message of these Proverbs so that we don't miss it. And they it, those verses reinforce the message of the overall book. So our main idea is found right there, as I said, in verse 13 and 14. I've summarized it this morning as embrace God's plan for life's emptiness or vanity as we look to his finished work as our hope. We're going to see that as we walk through these Proverbs, that this binds it together. We see it, though, as he asks this rhetorical question we've already considered in verse 13, who can make straight what he, God, has made crooked? Now, the work of God he's talking about here in making it crooked, the work of God here is, is the curse response we see in Genesis chapter 3 in God's response to sin. To really understand Ecclesiastes, you've got to understand that he's commenting on Genesis chapter 3 and beyond where God responds to man's rebellion against his good purposes by exiling them outside the garden and saying, now you're going to work with the sweat of your brow. It's going to be hard to find any gain. And there's going to be pain and sorrow in life and in that work. And your real hope is that I will cover your sins with my redemption. And then we just see life move on from there and so the writer of Ecclesiastes is actually helping us see that 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 this this work is what God is doing he has made things this way life isn't working just to deliver God's blessing to us as we have disconnected ourselves from him what God is doing in time is frustrating every pursuit that we have apart from him until we come back to him as our genuine hope. And, and so you see it going on here. This, this curse that is described in Genesis 3 is now more vividly displayed in Ecclesiastes. It's designed to frustrate us in our individual pursuits apart from God and call us back to a genuine relationship with him and his purposes. He made life unable to be unraveled apart from his plan. If you think you can make life work under the sun, you are fighting against God, he says, in a foolish way, and you'll discover soon enough that you cannot make straight what God has made crooked. What is crooked is referenced in verses 13 and 14. The times and seasons of our lives are unpredictable and out of control. Like You, do, you don't know what's coming next. What turn will you be facing in your life? I mean, if we're honest for a second... You don't know if your life is turning into a season of prosperity and advancement or one of devastation and loss. It's unpredictable, isn't it? Where will it turn? What is it for? And how do we beat it? Well, the answer is we don't. We learn to receive these things as a gift from God, even in adversity, he says. And that's pretty difficult. The seasons include times of prosperity, times of adversity. We can't predict them. That's part, partly due to the effects of sin. And then here, as the writer says, God's purposeful design in response to sin. 
to reinforce that he is sovereign and we are small. So what is difficult to embrace here? Well, it's difficult to embrace that life under the sun is empty apart from God's redeeming work because we're constantly trying to prove God wrong. We're constantly trying to show that we can figure it out. We can bring satisfaction. We can avoid the loss. We're working, and some of us are stressing so badly to avoid any difficulty in life that we can't see where we really are. Like, that there's no avoiding loss. There's no avoiding hardship, and ultimately, there's no avoiding death. As a result of sin and the curse, we are going to experience the ugly effects of things in this life that empty many of the wonderful moments of their savor and joy. And that's difficult for us to receive. But the question is, for you, in responding to this book, and particularly to this passage, here's the question. Will you hear this truth about life and embrace what God is doing to make things beautiful in His time, in the seasons He's chosen for you? Or will you reject it and try to make life under the sun your goal? Like, which one is it going to be? And the, and the author has been trying to get us to receive what God is doing in his times and seasons in our life instead of fighting back all the time and thinking we can overcome God's work with our wisdom. So are you ready to receive this difficult truth? The main idea is what the Proverbs in verse 1 through 12 are meant to reinforce. The 12 verses of Proverbs here break into two sections indicated by the statement, this is also vanity at the end of verse 6. That is often how the teacher in Ecclesiastes ends the point. And we're going to look at these verses in two sections now that reinforce this main point that we've been considering. The first is in verses 1 through 6. You're going to see that, that the vanity of life under the sun is seen most clearly in death. You know, this is the one subject he's been hitting at, death, in the book that he hasn't fully explored that he hasn't forced us to take a deep look at. It's a difficult thing the writer has been showing us about life. That because of sin and the curse, we are all going to suffer loss. We try to avoid that, right? We try to avoid thinking about loss and pain and death, the real effects of sin. And into that avoidance comes these six verses. The idea that we have a deeply entrenched willingness to gloss over the ugly parts of life and convince ourselves that we can beat the hevel, the vanity, is so entrenched that he's been working for this entire book to bring it up. You see, we have a deep deception that we can avoid the ugly realities of loss and disappointment that sin has brought upon us. We want to convince ourselves that we are living in paradise, but the Bible makes something clear from the beginning. From the moment Adam and Eve are placed outside the garden, we are living in exile from God under a curse as a result of sin. That's where we are. That's what the world will show us. That's what our experience will show us. That sin destroys the good things that God intended for us. But are we listening? Well, these verses are, are meant to, to make us go all the way into the face of death to listen. So let's look at what they say. With, with the very first verse, then, and, and you're going to need to look along, along. I would encourage you to grab out a, a phone if you don't have a Bible open. We're just going to look at these verses so closely. But with the very first verse, in verse 1, he's inviting us to decide which sort of life that you really want. Which thing is better? The contrast is made between a good name or reputation. And a precious ointment. What is he doing getting us started there? Well, the good name represents like substance that's been able to look at the reality of life. It represents substance. And the precious ointment represents a superficial covering or a facade. Why do we need perfume or cologne other than having a signature scent? More often than not, in the context of a funeral and death, what was it used for? To cover over the gross realities, right? decay and he's sort of saying that you know there's one he's using that symbolically to say that we're often tempted to use avoidance and things that will cover over and distract from the the ugliness of sin and decay at funerals when we face death 
But what would be better? It would be better to, to know that when people are eulogizing us, that they're able to eulogize someone who has a substantive wisdom and a good name. Where there won't need to be any covering over to see the ugliness of it because there's been a, a real maturity gained from hearing God, from walking with God. The ointment, like a perfume, is used to cover over these ugly realities, and the good name is something that needs no covering because it's mature and wise. So you can have ideas that cover over the ugly realities, or you can develop wisdom that is substantive through them. So this is your choice in life. Are you going to use perfume to cover over the ugly realities of life, or are you going to learn God's wisdom to be able to live through it and have a good name and reputation? That is what the writer of Ecclesiastes has been making us face. Do you want substance? Do you want to see the world for what it really is and receive God's plans and purposes? Or do you want to just keep pretending that everything's fine? Become wise, he says, by seeing the truth about the vanity in most of the things that we look to in life. In this sense, the day of death represents the progress of getting wisdom Death is more wise and clarifying than birth. And I think in some way we all recognize this, don't we? We recognize that the wisdom that is potentially gained with age sets someone who is on death's door in a place of wisdom in a way that a child cannot comprehend. There's a real naivety that we protect children from about the realities of life. But in time, they all have to take the medicine and come to see the real realities of sin and death and disease and find hope in something other than the vain pursuits of life. And so here he says, if you've gained that, the day of death represents a time when that maturity, those who are near death have a maturity that is the culmination of a life of learning the important lessons they've needed to learn in God's world. Death is more wise and clarifying it's been given the opportunity to gain substantive maturity. This maturity is what is being offered to us in the book of Ecclesiastes if we're willing to look at the substance rather than the surface coverings in life. That's what he's saying. He goes on in verse 2 and continues to show us that we must learn the lesson that life under the sun is this way by not avoiding the lesson that death reinforces. Notice what he says in verse 2. It's better to go into the house of mourning. He's saying to us, let's go there now. Let's look at death and what it teaches us. It's better to go there than to the house of feasting, he says, for this is the end of all mankind. The end of all mankind is to eventually go near death. To have death strip us of all of the things that we thought really mattered. So he says, sin will ultimately separate us from the joys God intended in creation. And it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In the house of feasting, as nice as it is, we can often and often do cover over the realities of life that death in the house of mourning show us and are used to make us wise. You see the contrast he's making? He's saying, over here in the party scene, you get one kind of view of life and over here in the house of mourning you get another one and he's saying the substance that will really actually mature us grow us in wisdom and help us accept what God is doing is found in the house of mourning and that often we use party and celebration as frivolous covers over the harder realities of life now, this isn't saying that there's never a time to rejoice all throughout the book. He said, rejoice when God gives you the opportunity. But don't mistake the fact that there are these real difficult moments in life that teach us what is really going on. This is further clarified in verse 3 when he shows us this on a deeper level. He says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. So, so think about what he's saying here. In the house of mourning, there's an opportunity to gain wisdom that is really substantive and not just gloss over the difficult realities of life. You see, when he says sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad, he's giving us some insight. Here is the insight. When we are in a place of comedy, when we are in a place of comedy and celebration, we're tempted to avoid the real brokenness and hungers of our heart. I don't, I don't know if you know this is what people do, but we use humor 
and lightheartedness and pleasures and distractions at times to keep us continually thinking about, sort of continually distracted from the deeper issues of our heart. I mean, you see this in, in the way some of our most prescient comedians often have a deep sense of sorrow and despair, regularly taking their own lives. Because there's a type of surface laughter and celebration that is simply an avoidance of what is really difficult and true in life. And he says, but then, then there's kind of a reverse, actually. He says there's an opportunity when we go into the house of mourning to feed on something more substantive, something that's deeper, that can begin to make the heart glad and not just the face. See, here the face represents surface, a facade. But I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where through a, a period of sorrow, you began to gain wisdom and perspective on life that has actually brought some joy, that, brought, that, that helped you connect with the things that matter more substantively and deeply. That's what he's pointing to and says what happens as we lean in and receive what God is teaching us in those moments. Laughter, as it is, can be used to cover a deep despair and disappointment of the soul. And maybe, maybe you do this. Maybe, maybe you've seen it in your own life. In essence, our souls know that life has become broken and ugly in many ways, but some of us use surface laughter and endless pleasure on the face of things to avoid deep reflection that can reorder our hearts and make us glad with genuine wisdom and substance from within. But to do that, you've got to trust God. To do that, you've got to trust that God has purposes in both adversity and in times of prosperity. You have to receive because you can't overcome these situations. Death is one of those things you can't overcome. It forces you to face truths that you would otherwise avoid. You see, the writer isn't, I just want to point out, the writer of Ecclesiastes all along, he hasn't been trying to make us miserable. You see, we have a sense of immature misery in our hearts because we can't often face the truth. He's trying to take us from surface happiness that avoids the misery of life in our own hearts to owning the reality of loss and vanity in the world and gaining a heart that trusts God rather than ourselves and begins to really become a person of substance and wisdom. He's trying to transfer our joys from things in this world into a place of trust and a posture where we know that we can be rooted and secure in God, not just in our own wisdom and work. Some of us would benefit greatly today from being removed from the misery that we're trying to fight the battle to secure our own lives to a place where we just knew that, that, that if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, wouldn't that be a great place to be? Well, until you learn that God is a redeemer, you're going to be fighting all your battles on your own in the world to gain whatever wisdom and whatever pleasure you can out of the vain pursuits of life instead of entrusting yourself to the God who's making things beautiful in time. And here in this chapter, facing death and mourning is the way to get there, he says. It's the last chance he has to help you realize you are not going to go on winning and winning and winning in the vain pursuits of life. It's the way to transfer our hope from the vain things in this life to the God who is beyond the sun and has real purpose. So he says, the wise man is in the house of mourning and the fool, verse 4, is in the house of mirth. So he sums up his point then in verse 5, saying that it's better to go into the house of mourning and have our shallow view of life rebuked by the reality of death than to go on avoiding the difficult things in life by staying in party mode. Do you see it there in, in verse 5? It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise to the than to hear the song of fools. Now, he's just not just saying a general proverb. He's told us already the wise man is in the house of, the mor of mourning. And so this message that we need to deal with the difficult things in life and come to grips with what God is doing and see him as our hope, this, this is a rebuke to those of us who think we could beat the system. And he says, go into that house where that gets rebuked. rather than just go to the laughter of fools. 
Because the distractions of the party are a lot of noise and no substance. He uses a word picture to show us what avoidance looks like. It's like thorns crackling under a pot. What does he mean by that? He says the, the, the laughter of fools is like thorns crackling under a pot. Well, what he means is, you know, over here in the house of mirth, where we don't look at the serious realities of life and we're always distracting ourselves, there's a lot of noise about the things that are going on, but there's no substance there. Just like when, if you were to build a fire with primarily thorns, you'd get a lot of crackle and pop in a fast-moving fire, but there wouldn't be any real heat. There's no substance. And so the invitation for us is to hear the lesson of death that, that we don't have in our hands the ability to satisfy ourselves, to secure our lives, and even to figure out their purpose. What we can do is offer ourselves to God and rest in His redemption. And so, he says these, these thorns, they burn loud and fast, but in the end, they bring no substantive heat. And you're going to need some wisdom like an oak log if you want something to really feed on in life. And he's been trying to give it to us. And once we've been thoroughly convinced to face reality and receive this rebuke, the writer turns to closing the door on some of the things that we may look to for hope while learning the difficult truth that life is full of hevel. The real move we need to make is to rest in God's beautiful redemption and his redemptive plan because God's work is what really endures. Now, how do we see this in verses 7 through 12? We see, and I just summarize it this way, that the vanity of life points us to God's finished work as our hope. So you may hear this and you go, okay, so we're all going to face death and loss, and, and, and it's a picture of the, the effects of sin, and it's an invitation for us to return to God and find that He is the source of our lives. But what do we do? Well, we're tempted to find lots of other ways to fight back against this, and he wants to close the door. So we're going to move quickly through these in verses 7 through 12, but now what happens in our set of Proverbs, Solomon the teacher anticipates the places that we look for hope, and he shows their limitations. He really wants us to learn to trust God instead of anything else. Let, to, to let God's plans and purposes of redemption have their way in our life. To reconnect to God, to return to Him and make God alone our refuge in life and death. Let's see it in verse 7. Verse 7 shows that human wisdom cannot protect you from difficult moments in life. So many of us are, you know, immediately are like, well, I'll just become really wise by human terms. That's going to protect me. But he says that we're not really capable of acquiring this level of wisdom. He shows us this in verse 7 by saying, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. That one, you know, when I first read that one, I was like, what, what is that doing here? What is he trying to say? Well, one of the places that we go to try to think that we can overcome the difficult realities of life is if I just become wise enough, I'll be able to avoid them, right? But what he says here, he, he starts with this, maybe we can start with the second half of this verse. He says, a, a person who takes a bribe, you can't participate in a bribe and be near it without it corrupting you. So whether you give it or you receive it, in some way, it's a participation in corruption in the heart. Just being exposed to that experience begins to corrupt the heart. Let's bring that back up then to the top part of the line. He actually says, for all of our wisdom being exposed to the level of oppression in the world as a revolt, result of sin and wickedness has the same effect. It'll take the wisest person and bring them to madness. I mean, we, we've seen this. If you, I mean, the truth is, if you open your eyes and wake up to the calamities of life and the oppression that exists in the world, it, it's overwhelming. Try to figure out who's right and how do we fix it and what do we do about this and how do we respond and all of that. You know, there's all these moments that we're forced to reckon with on a global scale, on a local scale, where we see oppression that has taken place and, and we, we think we're wise enough to figure it out, but what happens more often than not, it just drives us to madness. People act like they know, right? <laughs> you go on Twitter, you can find everybody's opinions. I guess it's called X now, right? People say, oh, you should respond this way to this situation and that way to this situation. But, you know, even just the, the recent terrible ter terrorist attack by Hamas just shows how 
wise the world is in general about dealing with oppression. It's a straight up disaster of responses, right? And we sit here and we, we look at the ugly, just being exposed to the ugliness of war is enough to drive us into a place of hopelessness and despair. Because even if you think you have the right perspective, you still have to look at the reality. And it's awful. It'll drive a wise person mad, he says. So there's no refuge in, in a life of brokenness and just gaining wisdom without being able to take those things and place them back in the hands of God and, says, and saying, we're going to need a God who is far wiser than us. If there's any plan or purpose in this, it's going to require a God of infinite wisdom. And what he's been telling us is there is a plan and purpose in which God is working out, and you're not going to be able to work it out. There are going to be so many things that, if you, that, that just that, that exposure to it is going to make life difficult. So he compares the effect of our exposure to sin and evil uh, to the way a bribe corrupts the heart. You know, we know this, and, and we see the effects of trauma and PTSD and other exposure to evil and how it affects people. We were not designed. Do you know that we were not designed to see the awful realities that we experience at times in this world? God didn't build us for that. Sin brings consequences, even just to the observer. The ugliness of oppression and wickedness can overwhelm the heart. Where do we go? How, how do we have any hope? Well, the only hope that we really have is that there's a God who's acting redemptively in this world and makes all things beautiful in his time. And right now we're in the middle of a story that we have to wait on, he says. Verses 8 and 9 show it's foolish to fight back against what God is doing, to say, oh, no, 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 we're going to fix the world. You know, human resolve will fail us in the face of vanity. Here we are invited to let God's plan and purpose mature in us and wait until he is done with his plan for the world he created. If, if what was said earlier in the book in Ecclesiastes 3 is that God is making things beautiful in his time, the reason he keeps talking about the end of a thing here is he's saying right now you will be tempted to look at the mess that is going on either in your life or in the world and you're going to be tempted to say, God, you don't know what you're doing. He says, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> We're in the middle of the story. We're in the middle of what's happening here. And sometimes in the middle of it, in the season that you may be in, the season we may be in, it can look pretty ugly. Looks pretty crooked. Pretty bad. No amount of, and it's, it's not going to really help for us to be impatient with God and tell God how he ought to act, to become angry and respond back, he says in verse 8 and 9. If you're just angry about the way the world is, you are going to be fighting against the purposes and sovereignty of God instead of waiting for his redeeming hope to be brought to completion. That, that This is an invitation for us to faith. What do we do in the face of so much brokenness, in, in the face of vanity, in our inability to satisfy ourselves? We wait on God. God is our salvation and not ourselves. And so he says, there's a foolishness to being impatient with God because he's not done yet. And we want to demand that he would finish it in our time and in our lives, but, but we have to wait until God has completed his work. That's when it will be seen as beautiful. And the invitation to a spiritual life is an invitation to faith that that redeeming God is the real God. So, he says it's like the early stages of an art project. It doesn't look like much, and it doesn't look good. But wait. Being full of pride and angry about where you are right now will bring no value. In moments of adversity, consider. How is God using this moment in my life? Verse 10 then invites us to avoid a false sentimentality. This is another thing people do in the face of difficult seasons. They say what he says we shouldn't say here. Why were the former days better? Let's just go back to the good old days, right? Let's go back to some time. But all along what he said is, is that that in various times and places, there's both joy and sorrow. 
and, and that what's going on is God is maturing in time. There, there are no good old days. He says when we say, if only we could go back to the good old days, we're not doing it from wisdom. We're doing it from naive sentimentality. What do children do? I mean, we, if that time before I was responsible, that was so good. Like, take me back to Little League Baseball and riding my bike through the town. When I was naive and hadn't learned yet to carry some of the realities that we'd have to face in life. I don't think I want to go back to that kind of day, to be honest. And it's not because it's been easy. I mean, you could list the things that you've had to encounter, to endure, hard-fought wisdom. Maybe just survival through some difficult days. You're now thankful that you're not having to relive. I've got some like that. Got a bunch of days and I'm glad I don't have to relive. But I'm also weirdly thankful for. And this is what happens. We gain this sense of wisdom through these hard moments. Sometimes we're so foolish to think that there's some good old days back there where sin wasn't having its effect on people, but the same things were happening. He says, we don't say this from wisdom. What we want actually is the maturity that comes with going forward and seeing God unveil more of his plan and beauty even in the wreckage of the world. That we be able to embrace that and say, God, I'll take what you're growing in me. I'll take the process that you're taking me through because I can see your redemption a little more clearly today than I could last week or last year. I, I'm more confidently rooted in who you are than I was before. It's, it's a better place to be, he says. There's no wisdom in turning back the clock. To a pastime. It's like Uncle Rico pining for the good old days in Napoleon Dynamite. It looks foolish because it's not true, right? Laugh break after a serious moment. <laughs> but as we round up these Proverbs, verse 11, 12, plays a special role. They force us to consider the ways we may have been protected from some of the harsher realities of life that death will eventually expose. You may be sitting here and be like, all this talk that we've had in Ecclesiastes about difficulty and hardship, I mean, you're just so negative. Why have you been taking us through this negative, negative book? Well, one of the things he shows us in verse 11, through 12, 11 and 12 is that there is some benefit to having knowledge and wisdom in life. He says it's passed on to us most of the time like an inheritance. Somebody gave you a leg up. He says it's just like an inheritance. It's like having money. There are two things that extra knowledge and wisdom and money can do for you. They can insulate you from some of the harder realities. And maybe if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't need a book like this that turns me to genuine hope, enduring hope in God, things are going pretty good. My guess is that you've been handed some really uh, helpful wisdom and knowledge or some money. Because those two things can temporarily protect you from some of the harsher realities of life. And let's not forget that we live in one of the wealthiest counties in the wealthiest nation on earth. And therefore it's likely that if you don't feel this pain that he's been pointing out about loss in life, it might be because through money and a leg up of knowledge and wisdom, you've been insulated from some of the harsher realities of life. And if you went out with open eyes instead of avoidance, you might be surprised how difficult it's been for others. You might be surprised. One of the things that could be a danger to your life is you wouldn't believe you need God's salvation to be your security because you feel pretty secure right now. And he says that may work for a few individuals. But death's day is coming when even that day will strip you of it. And you'll have to stand before God. So that is good news for you on one level, but the writer here says that it's been the result of these two things. You've either been passed down this inheritance of sound wisdom or money, which can protect a person from these harsh realities. Here, wisdom and money are seen to be like temporary and individual layers of insulation. If you look beyond yourself, you're going to see all the things that this book has been showing us. 
And the only refuge and hope we have under the sun is that there is a God who is working in both the times of prosperity and adversity to bring about our redemption. And in a sense, we can see with more clarity what, so- what Solomon could only trust in part. And so what do we do with all this? What do we do as we face death, as we really take a good look at the harsher and more ugly realities of life as we've studied through this book? You may have been asked the question, what do I do? Well, based on what we've learned about God's work, here's what we do. You see, have you ever noticed that, that thought about Solomon writing before Christ and us reading this after Christ? In a sense, we can see with more clarity what Solomon could only trust in part about the beauty of God's plan in time. Despite the fact that life under the sun is a place of exile, away from the blessing of God, God is working in the times and seasons to bring about his redemption and salvation like a promise. From the very moment in the garden where, where he placed them outside, he also covered them with the, with the clothes of an animal, and he also promised promised them that he would bring about their salvation, that sin would not overcome them, but at some point that, that his seed, that God's sent son would overcome all that Satan had to destroy through, had destroyed through sin, and that he would be the victor who stomped on the snake's head. And he meant to show us through that, that God was going to work out a beautiful redemption promise in time that would save us from our sin. And Solomon could only imagine what God's finished work might look like, but we have seen it clearly in the coming of Christ. We're in a a position of advantage. What he could look through like a shadow and darkly, we, we now get to sit and go, we know God's plans. God's plans are beautiful. In Christ, God has kept the promise of rescuing us from sin in all of its effects. The, the ongoing continuation of God's purposes in the world have revealed that God is a redeemer, that God overcomes sin, that he has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has bore the sins of the world. He has secured our promise. In Christ, we can see that death can destroy our false hopes, but cannot overcome our real hope that God himself gives. Have you think about how good news that is today? All the things that death can destroy and steal from us cannot rob us of the real hope that he's pointing us to. In Christ, we've seen that God invites us out of the exile of sin where we've pursued all sorts of false hope apart from him to be welcomed into his family where our deepest joy and satisfaction is secure even beyond death. He's made a table for us to feed at eternally and secured us into his family. We're no longer exiles in Christ. We are welcomed home. In Christ, God has shown us how he can bring beautiful redemption out of the ugliest moments. We've been talking about enduring ugly moments, but do you know what we discover in Christ? That in fact, God can work in those moments and is simultaneously working his redemption in some of the hardest times that we experience. For Christians, the cross of Jesus is our hope. That instrument of death in the eyes of the world is an instrument of life in the hands of God. Have you seen that? That what's an instrument of death in the eyes of the world, in God's hands, has become an instrument of life to us? What does that mean for the situation you're facing that looks like an instrument of death? And in God's hands, it can also be a life giver in ways that you would never anticipate. In Christ, we discover that our moments of joy can be received in life because even if there are future moments of adversity, we'll never be separated from the love of God. In Christ, we know that with each passing day, The progress of God's redemption draws us nearer the time when death will be defeated, sorrow will turn to joy, tears will be wiped from our eyes, and we will ever be with the Lord. Time has shown that as God's plan of redemption has matured, and it gives us the reason to secure our faith to what God can do to rescue us rather than the work we can do for ourselves. Over and over, We're told to wait for the completion of what God is doing before we judge. It points us to a truth that we can only wait to see the fullness of that what is revealed in God's redemption is better than what is found in his creation. 
Paul encourages us to face our times of adversity with a deep knowledge of this promise of salvation and await the fullness of our redemption when God's victory over sin will reveal the beauty of his love for us. And the question then becomes for us from Ecclesiastes, will you humble yourself and receive this today? Will you receive this good promise? Where we look for God's work in our moments of adversity and look to Christ's finished work for our hope and our security. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper? For a moment as we pray, I want you to think about how you've responded to the Lord. Maybe he's been using some moments in your life to show you your need for the cross of Jesus, for his hope and salvation. And today you want to turn from that sin in your life and trust in Christ. Right even now as we prepare to sing, where you're at, you can do that. You can respond and say, Lord, I know that I've been looking for my hope and salvation everywhere but in you. But today I want to turn from my sin and put my hope in the finished work of Christ. I want to rest these times and seasons in your hands. You can just respond to him. Maybe you have a, maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you would say, you know, I, I've been facing some things that I've been fighting against rather than looking for God's gracious hand in. Today I need to come before him with humility and ask him to show me what he wants to do, how he wants to mature me, to grant me wisdom. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to worship and look to you. We pray that as we sing and receive the reminder of your broken body and shed blood for us, Lord, that we would find our hope and security in your completed plan. In Jesus' name, amen.